1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Today we begin two weeks on the subject of church leadership. And as far as I'm concerned, this is today's most pressing issue. Moral, godly, courageous leadership is critical to any church's success. Over the years, church leaders have gone by different titles. Shepherd and reverend and priest and parson, padre and cleric and vicar and rector and curate, to name just a few. Sadly, these titles are a far cry from the titles used in the New Testament, like servant and slave and steward and pastor and fellow soldier and worker and laborer and elder and brother. In fact, there's a trend today among status-seeking, power-hungry pastors to take a more exalted title. Pastor is not lofty enough, and so they'll go by bishop. Usually a few years later, and they supersize it to archbishop. You know, like private, then sergeant, then lieutenant, they create a rank, sort of a pecking order. Pastor, then bishop then archbishop. And this is the very practice that Jesus prohibited. Jesus saw how the Jews in his day were using this same kind, these same kind of ego-inflating titles. And he warned his disciples of this. He said, they love to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now bring all this up because in this morning's text, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, here Paul uses the term bishop. But not in some, uh, as a title, an inflated title to impress. No, he uses it as a word meant to define and to illustrate. God appoints men to be bishops in the church. And this Greek word that gets translated bishop, it provides us an excellent picture of the role of church leadership. It's the title episcope. Here's a combination of two Greek words. It's epi, which means over or on top. And it's scope, which means to see. We think of to scope out. We think of the word scope. Put the two terms together, and this word episcope means to oversee or to see from the top. In other words, there are certain men in the church that God chooses to see the big picture and to oversee the life of the church. You know, usually a head football coach will roam the sidelines. He, he stays close to the action. He, he listens for feedback and motivates the team and even argues with the refs. But his view from the trenches is limited. Too much happens on a football field. Every play, 22 men line up, and they go into motion, and they create various angles, and then they explode into these multiple collisions all over the field. Successful plays determine proper alignment. You leverage the angles in football. And there's no way that a coach at ground level has a broad enough perspective to see the spacing that's occurring all over the field. That's why strategy comes from on top. 
You see, a bevy of assistant coaches in communication with the sideline, they're filling up this press box. They're overseeing the action. They're the ones who see the big picture and make the crucial calls. The outcome of a game isn't just determined by the best team on the field. Sometimes it boils down to who's better in the press box. And for the same reasons, it's vital for a church to have good oversight and overseers. Church leadership is a critical component under the hood of a church. Now, as you know, in our current series, we're comparing the church to an automobile and various assemblies. We're popping the hood on the church. And the people in leadership are the church's steering column. Throughout the New Testament, three factors determine and define church leadership. One is character. Church leaders need to have integrity. In fact, next week, we're going to examine chapter 3 and the list of traits that need to be present in a leader. Second on the list is giftedness. Chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that an elder should be able to teach. And the third component that defines church leadership is gender. This is the topic that we want to deal with today. Let's read again chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop. Notice in the very next verse, Paul adds the phrase, a husband of one wife. That implies male. Notice Paul has just cut the prospect pool for pastors and elders in half. Throughout the New Testament, positions of authority in the church are limited to men. In the church and in the home, God wants men to step up and be leaders. Here's one more title that should be used for a church leader. Mister. Mister. And yet, sadly, that's not what we see happening today in most churches. If you walk into an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, or into a Muslim mosque, or even into a Buddhist temple, you'll find a preponderance of men. But not so in your typical church today. Statistics show that 60% of church attendees are now women. Author David Murrow, he writes, Of the world's great religions, only Christianity has a consistent nagging shortage of male practitioners. To make matters worse, most churches today are also led by women. It's true that 95% of senior pastors and the majority of assistant pastors are still men, but after that, it's a whole train of women who rule the roost in most churches. Churches become a girl's world. Where are the men? Actually, in all Western society, from the workplace to the bedroom, there's confusion today about the sexes. Men desire to lead, but they don't. Or perhaps they don't know how. Women want to be led by loving men. But they've become so disillusioned, they feel pressured to to take the reins. Last month's cover of Newsweek magazine pictured a man holding his little boy. The copy reads, Man up! The traditional male is an endangered species. It's time to rethink masculinity. Even the world around us sees there's a problem. This article goes on and documents the confusion that exists today in our culture, especially among young men. Hey, when women run the ship, 
young men tend to jump overboard. Understand, young men are in the process of becoming real men. They need to prove their masculinity, and they do so by acting in ways that break away from mom. Ladies, you got to understand this. Don't take it personally. You see, in their mind, real mom, I mean, uh, mama's boy and real man, they're polar opposites in their mind. They have to prove their manhood by breaking away from mom. Listen to social commentator Camille Pagula. She, she offers this explanation. She says, a woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It's achieved by a revolt from woman, and it's confirmed only by other men. This is why a Christian community led by women will not attract young men. Strong male leadership is pivotal in the development of young men. The fact is, most of today's social problems are exploding prison population, unwed pregnancies, gang violence, the drug culture. It can all be traced back to young men who've gone astray. The church today needs to gear itself toward reaching tomorrow's husbands and fathers. And men reach younger men. The biggest need in the church today is strong, godly, male leadership. Now Paul begins in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he talks about gender. He begins by encouraging us to pray for all men. But all men come in two varieties. God created humans, male and female. In Genesis, when God created the universe... He did so by separating and by drawing distinction. His very first creative act was to divide the light from the darkness. He then divided waters from above the firmament from those waters below the firmament. He then separated the sea from the dry land. He even divided the night from the day. God then created fish and birds and beasts, but again, with distinction. He used biological boundaries. All living things reproduce after their own kind or species. That's because God is very specific. He distinguishes between all that He creates. And when God's creative work reaches its apex, when He creates mankind, He once again divides and specifies. God separates mankind into male and female. And every time the New Testament speaks to gender, the author almost always traces the root of the discussion back to Genesis and to creation. Understand, the biblical order for the sexes transcends the cultural arrangements that pop up from time to time and place to place. What the New Testament teaches about gender is more than a social construct. It's God's creative order. God designed maleness and femaleness. Gender and its distinctions result from His creation. Biblical roles for the sexes therefore apply to all cultures and all generations. Gender matters to God. And this means 1 Timothy chapter 2. And its instruction applies to you and me today. We surveyed this chapter a couple of weeks ago, but today I want us to take a closer look I want us to read again verses 11 through 14. 
Here we're told, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And here's why. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, before we tackle these controversial rules, let's uncover their rationale. Here he tells us the reason that a woman's role should be limited in the public assembly of the church. He says it in one sentence. It's because Adam was formed first, then Eve. You'll remember from Genesis, the body of Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. God then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Eve came later. She was the result of the first surgery. God put Adam into a deep sleep, opened up his side, and pulled out something curved. That's how the Hebrew renders it. We're not sure if it was a rib or a piece of cartilage or uh, maybe an extra organ that he had. We don't know, but whatever it was, God turned it into a woman. Someone described Eve's creation as the first splitting of an atom and an unleashed a force into the world that has never been contained. But here's Paul's point. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Understand, in the Bible, special prerogatives and responsibilities are always assigned to the firstborn, the firstborn son. This is why Rebecca's twin boys, Esau and Jacob, you remember they wrestled in the womb. They were in the mother's womb jockeying to be firstborn. Apparently, Esau won the initial struggle, but the wrestling match had just begun. For the title firstborn means a lot more than born first. That's proven later in the story. Esau comes in famished. His sneaky brother Jacob dangles a bowl of hearty Campbell's soup under his nose. Esau is governed by his appetites rather than his convictions. And he trades his spiritual birthright, this title of firstborn, to his brother for some warmed over chili. Jacob was born second, but he ended up the firstborn. And likewise, generation after generation of human beings were born before that first Christmas. When a virgin conceived and brought forth her firstborn son, Mary laid him in a manger and called his name Jesus. Jesus was born first only in Mary's family, but God awarded him with firstborn status over all creation. In Colossians 1 verse 15, Jesus is called the firstborn over all creation. Our Lord Jesus is now head and authority over all the universe. And so it was originally with Adam. God made a choice. Adam was formed first. And God bestowed on the man the title and duties of firstborn. Eve was as loved by God and as gifted by God as was Adam. But God gave the man authority over both the human family and his own immediate family. What a privilege. But it came with an obligation, a heavy responsibility. In fact, the weightiness 
of the man's role appears later when sin enters the world. You remember, it was Eve that sinned first, not Adam. Yet God held the man responsible. In fact, sin passed down to all men through Adam, not Eve. Eve bit the fruit, but Adam got the bigger bite of the responsibility. You see, theologians have a name for this concept. They call it federal headship. One man takes authority over a family or over a race. One man acts on behalf of all men. You know, later the Bible teaches that since all men are condemned in Adam, we now all can be saved in Christ. One man acts in proxy for a group. As David and Goliath fought it out for their respective sides to determine the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, all men today also fight for their tribe. The man is the head. He's the representative. He acts on behalf of his family. And don't misunderstand, God holds Eve and every other sinner personally accountable for his or her sin. In this sense, Eve's sin had nothing to do with Adam. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 14, there Adam gets off the hook morally. Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. See, he's saying Eve was clearly to blame. But since Adam was head... He shared in the responsibility. Likewise, Jesus had nothing to do with our sin, morally. Our failures are not His fault. Yet as our head, our firstborn, Jesus took responsibility for our folly and our rebellion. Our Lord carried our sin to the cross and died in our place. Biblical headship means taking responsibility for what's not my fault. So when a man becomes a husband and a father, or he assumes leadership in the church, he takes on this concept of biblical headship. He takes up the grave, serious, weighty responsibility. He agrees to cover his wife and kids. He stands in the gap for others. He doesn't grumble about problems that he didn't cause. He doesn't duck issues that other folks created. A husband at home, a leader at church, takes responsibility for what's not his fault. Though he's not part of the problem, he tries to be part of the solution. He's willing to become accountable for the people under his care. In short, he acts like a man and not a boy. Here's how this works in a marriage. Husband, your wife bears scars and hurts from past relationships. Her wounds and the dysfunctions that they have caused are not your fault, but they are now your responsibility. And as the head of your home, you're God's healing agent. You you need to be a soothing, stabilizing influence on your wife, not a voice of condemnation. Stop reminding your wife of her shame and her regrets and her past mistakes. Encourage her with God's forgiveness and with your grace. Honor your wife. Build her up. Cherish her until she values herself. Love her until she acts lovable. Jesus redeems his bride. He doesn't condemn her. We need to be like Jesus. For some of you, your wife brought a kid with an attitude into your life. That kid is not your fault. 
But a man, a man like Jesus, takes on responsibility. Headship is being accountable for stuff that's not my fault. A lot happens in life that we tend to blame on other people, on the wife or the child or the dog. But real men don't bellyache about what's not their fault. A man takes on responsibility to pay her debt, to forgive their sin, to fix that break. A man shows those under him a better life. He's like Jesus to his family. And this looks very similar to what happens in a church. Godly leaders realize that people make mistakes. Problems arise they didn't cause. A church leader doesn't cast blame. He works to solve problems. He takes on responsibility for stuff that's not his fault. Church leaders are God's healing agents to help hurting people that God seeks and saves. You see, Adam was created first, but with authority came responsibility. This is headship. Churches need leaders who embrace duty as well as authority. I love how Peter describes gender roles in the church and in the home. He he talks about males in authority, and he also talks about females with a submissive spirit, but he calls us all heirs together of the grace of life. First and foremost, we're co-heirs in God's family. We serve the same Lord. We're saved by the same grace. We're sealed with the same spirit. We're recipients of the same blessings. We hold title to the same heaven and the same glory. We're different in role, but we're equal in status and giftedness and favor. Men need to lovingly lead. Women need to willingly follow. But no man should ever become proud and haughty and callous and act superior to a woman. A Christian man should never try to dominate or intimidate his wife. Biblical masculinity is not some arrogant machismo. It's leadership among equals. Christian men should be head and heirs, not some airhead, okay? So here is Paul's rationale. Male headship is as old as Adam and Eve. Gender roles are part of God's creative order. It's embedded in our genes. This is how God has fashioned the sexes. From the beginning until now, this is how God orders society. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was made by God to take charge to provide for and to protect his wife. He was a loving leader. And Eve wanted Adam to leave. She found security and satisfaction at his side. And I believe if we were all honest today, these same desires still brew in the heart of every man and every woman. So how does Paul get from Adam was formed first, then Eve, all the way down to women should be silent in the church? Seems like a big jump. In the words of Neil Armstrong, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, here's Paul's logic. If God calls men to lead, women should let them. You see, it's not the fact that God says women should be silent. It's not that God doesn't like hearing a woman's voice in the church. Or that some hellish force will be unleashed if a woman desires to teach or takes, makes a decision or women are incapable of such things. That's not it at all. I don't think that's Paul's thought process in the least. It's much simpler than that. 
Paul is a man. And he knows that if women don't shut up, men will never speak up. If a woman doesn't allow a man to lead, if she jockeys and competes for power, if she never lets go of the reins and keeps wrestling leadership away from her man, then she'll end up sabotaging what she says she really wants. Show me a good husband who leads his wife in godliness and steers his kids in loving paths, And I'll show you a smart, sensitive woman who's learned to step back at times and in ways that help her man step up. Show me a church where there's strong male leadership. And I won't just show you determined men. I'll show you some strong women, probably more talented than those husbands. But women wise enough to deliberately take a back seat so their husbands will feel inclined to grab the wheel and start to steer. Whereas, show me a church where men are missing in action, and I'll show you a church where foolish, bossy women have competed for leadership. Understand, once a wife declares war on her husband, once she decides she is going to take a hostile position and fight him, there is nothing he can do to win. Nothing. If she wants to fight him, he is destined to be miserable. If he hits her, It goes very bad for him. He sleeps on the couch. Or he goes to jail and sleeps on the cot. Or she packs her bags and leaves and he ends up with hefty alimony. Nothing happens good. If he caves in, on the other hand, he's not a real man. He feels defeated and deflated. You see, men learn from an early age not to fight with girls. Why? Because they never win. If a wife wants to fight with her husband for a short time, he might shout and argue with her. But he's not as good with words or with tears as she is. He just can't compete. In a marital tug of war, 99% of the time, the wife wins by default. Here's what ultimately happens to most men. They just withdraw. They vacate. They live in the garage or they hang out with their buddies, or they work a lot, or they take up golf, or they just go fishing. They abandon the headship and leadership of their family. If his wife wants to lead, the man will just let her. You see, some women are intimidated by strong male leadership. Perhaps they've been hurt and abused by selfish evil men. And this has developed in them a general dislike and mistrust for all men. Why these women married, I don't know. But now that the knot's been tied, they have this need to control their husband to protect themselves. They sort of beat him down in order to keep him in line. Proverbs 14 verse 1 describes two types of women. He says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Every wife this morning should be asking herself, how do my actions and attitudes influence my husband? Do I help him man up? Or am I pulling him down? You know, some wives are gourmets in the kitchen, but man, they have failed to cook up a good husband. (laughs) Ladies, have you let him grow cold, sitting on the counter by himself? Do you always keep him in hot water? Is the poor guy boiling? Has he been burnt? 
hey, make sure he marinates in the right sauces and in the right spices, and then he'll be real tender and real delicious. Ladies, do you show your husband respect? What every man wants most from his wife is some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know, that's how men spell love. Do you try to build up his confidence? Do you encourage him to reach for the stars? Or does your criticism keep him hiding in a foxhole? I mean, why does he want to take initiative if it's never enough? Some men prefer to lay low and fly under the radar rather than to risk their wives' ridicule and digs. Why should a husband take charge when his wife is just going to buck his efforts until she gets her way anyway? Why step up with the kids if she's going to cut him off with the legs first time she differs with his discipline? All that Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 2, that women should learn in silence and be submissive and let the men teach and have authority, all this implies that there was this tremendous confidence in these women and in this church that their men were going to lead well. They had this confidence in their men. That's what it implies. How can a woman give these things up unless she can trust that her man's going to lead well? Rather than belittling or prohibiting these women, Paul's instructions commend them for knowing how to manage and encourage their men. And this is a skill that some wives in our church need to learn. Sometimes, ladies, less is more. You can lose to win. You don't always have to compete to get ahead. There are times when the best way to move forward is to take a step back. There's one certainty. No matter how fired up and excited a husband gets for leadership, he'll never follow through if his wife blocks his intentions. Ladies, if you're married to a man and to a Christian who loves God and loves you, it's time to learn to trust him. It's time to loosen your grip and dare to let him lead. A couple of weeks ago, I was with a group of pastors, and someone asked me if our church had female ushers. I said, no. He asked why. And I think he was expecting some detailed theological answer. My answer, though, was more basic. I told him, I said, men have always been ushers in our church. So why would I take a job from a man and give it to a lady when men need to step up and be more invested rather than less? I mean, today... Calvary has scores of women willing and ready and able to serve, but God is calling men to lead in their house and in the household of God. It's way past time for Christian men to man up and put on some britches. I doubt if the troops of the Swedish National Army have ever been known for their fierceness in battle, but I sure hope it doesn't get tested soon. Recently, feminist troops have petitioned a change in the Nordic battle group's coat of arms. Traditionally, the Swedes have marched to battle under the banner of a lion. But female troops recently had the lion neutered. You see the before and after there in the, in the picture? Catch this. Today, the Swedes march off to war under a castrated lion. Oh, I'm sure that strikes fear in the hearts of their enemies. And yet I look at some churches today, and this could be their coat of arms. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is seen as a lion, but not a neutered lion. 
He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's ferocious. Jesus is the king of the jungle. He roars and the nations tremble. He returns and devours his enemies. And yet today, the church that marches under his banner more closely resembles a neutered lion. Today's church has been stripped of much of its manliness. Women demand greater roles while men shrink to the rear. And as with the rest of our society, the church is becoming more and more feminized. You know, a century and a half ago, Charles Spurgeon commented, there has got to brought a notion somehow that if you become a Christian, you must sink your manliness and turn milksop. Somehow that notion is still afloat. Just because the New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ doesn't mean Christian men need to put on a skirt. The bride is a spiritual idiom for the church as a whole. But when Paul refers to individual men like Timothy and others, he calls them, O man of God, or my fellow soldier. He uses masculine terms. The church today needs strong, godly men. Church leaders go by titles like pastor and elder, but first of all, they should be called mister. Thirty years as a pastor has taught me that this issue is not a trivial matter. I've been involved in the selection process of countless pastors and elders. And there is one factor that stands out as the most reliable indicator of a man's success in leadership. And it's this. Does he wear the pants in his own family? Whenever Calvary looks for new leaders, this is our starting point. This is what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? This morning I have a request. Here's what I need to pastor this church into the future. To impact our community and to win our world for Jesus. Here's what I need. I need men who are going to love their wives and sacrifice for their kids. I need men who are going to pay their bills and work hard and build a life for their families. I need men who will speak up and live in such a way that it points to Jesus. I need men who care more about other people than they do fame and fortune. I need men who aren't afraid to shake things up and make things right. I need men who care enough about a brother to stop him from cheating on his income tax or shacking up with his girlfriend or neglecting his kids. I need men who give time and money and expertise to build a great church and leave to this next generation a legacy of faith. Yes, I need pastors and elders and deacons and all kinds of leadership, but first and foremost, I need men. It all starts with you, mister.